This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. There was that period of about a year and a half after the nuclear deal was signed before Donald Trump was elected president, when it was kind of a a test period, you know, can Iran's economy take off? The impact of external sanctions and, you know, U.S.-Iran tension absolutely casts a cloud over the Iranian economy. So how do the Iranians look at U.S. policy today? How do they think about the Trump administration? You know, it seems that the Iranian strategy is essentially to try to wait out the Trump administration, wait what happens with the midterm elections. So stay in the nuclear deal until then? There's a kind of a conventional wisdom that believes that Iran is going to stay in the nuclear deal. I have to say I'm not necessarily convinced that they will do that. Kareem Sajapur is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he focuses on Iran and U.S. foreign policy toward the Middle East. Prior to that, he was the chief Iran analyst at the International Crisis Group. Kareem is known as one of the best analysts on Iran anywhere. He regularly advises senior U.S., European, and Asian officials, and he has testified numerous times before Congress. He is also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and a frequent writer on Iranian affairs. I recently had a chance to sit down with Kareem to discuss all things Iran. We will be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From training warfighters to modernizing platforms to defeating UAVs with lines of code, Raytheon is working across networks, markets, and continents to protect every side of cyber. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Kareem, thanks for joining us today. It is great to have you on the show. It's my honor. Thank you. Kareem, I saw in your bio that you went to the University of Michigan. So I'm going to have to set aside my visceral dislike for maize and blue because you see I'm a scarlet and gray guy. Ah, I am a huge Ohio State fan. So it's kind of like Iran and Saudi Arabia, right? A little bit. That's right. And, you know, Ohio State has gotten the better of Michigan over the last decade and a half. Hopefully that will change. As an aside, the first person I met actually in freshman orientation, 1995 at 
in Ann Arbor was Tom Brady. Wow. Which in retrospect was one of those friendships I probably should have cultivated. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> one of the greatest quarterbacks who ever played. Yeah. That's terrific. What I'd love to do today is really unpack Iran for folks. Mm-hmm. Enhance their understanding of Iran and what's happening there. How the Iranians think about us and all sorts of things. All with the goal of teasing out what that means or should mean for U.S. policy Mm -hmm. toward Iran, if that makes sense. Sure. But maybe the place to start is, before we jump into that, is how did you get interested in this? You know, where were you when you got interested? Why did you get interested? Tell me that story. So my parents are both Iranian. My father left Iran in the late 1950s. My mother actually grew up in Italy, and they emigrated to the U.S., way before the Iranian Revolution. The vast majority of Iranians in the U.S. came around 1979 when the revolution happened. Uh, My family was here earlier. We settled in in, in Michigan. But I think every Iranian who has lived in the last half century has been impacted by the revolution and its aftermath. So I initially actually wasn't interested in the Middle East, although my parents are of Iranian heritage. I had lived in Latin America. I had lived in Europe And I wasn't really interested in in focusing on the Middle East. And I think a few things happened when I was uh, an undergrad at University of Michigan in 1997. uh, Mohammad Khatami was elected president of Iran. And he was someone who was a reformer, who was talking about, exactly, talking about dialogue of civilizations. And all of a sudden, I looked at Iran in in a new light, new and more interesting light. And then what happened subsequently was I, I started visiting the Middle East. I, I, I took a, a trip to Istanbul when I was studying abroad in Rome. I had received another grant to do a research project on the Internet, and I spent time in Cairo. And then finally in 2001, just the summer before September 11th, I actually went to Iran for the first time and spent three months traveling throughout the country and so my freshman year in graduate school at Johns Hopkins size, September 11th, happened. And it kind of became clear to me that, you know, I was, you know, going to pursue a career related to Iran and the Middle East. Okay, so let's unpack Iran. And maybe the place to start is the Iranian economy. How would you characterize the state of the economy, not from a quarter-to-quarter perspective, but from a longer-term perspective? You know, the Iranian economy is in terrible shape because what's happening in Iran domestically is they're experiencing a convergence of crises. So you have a currency crisis, a downward spiraling currency that has lost tremendous value over the last couple of years. At the same time, the economy is hemorrhaging because the regime is spending a lot of money overseas to support its regional allies, whether that's Bashar Assad in Syria uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, Shiite militias in Iraq, uh, the Houthis in Yemen. And the foreign investment that the regime was hoping for in the aftermath of the nuclear deal really didn't come in. And I know that's blamed a lot on the United States or the Trump administration, but there's also just these intrinsic challenges within Iran, whether that's crony capitalism, amazing, uh, incredible amounts of corruption. Uh, mismanagement, lack of transparency. So Iran is a country which has enormous potential. It's got enormous human capital, and obviously it has enormous resources in oil and gas, but it's tremendously, it's consistently punched below its weight as an economy. So how much of the poor performance is bad economic management 
and how much of it is Iran's distressed relationship with the rest of the world behind the economic problems? So there was a period after the nuclear deal was signed, the JCPOA was signed in 2015, in which the Obama administration, led by President Obama and Secretary of State Kerry, were very eager for the world and for the United States to engage in Iran. Secretary Kerry was actually criticized a lot for encouraging foreign investment in in Iran. And so there was that period of about a year and a half after the nuclear deal was signed before Donald Trump was elected president when it was kind of a, a test period. You know, can Iran's economy take off? And the reality is that it's still an economy which is dominated by state institutions, by the military, by the Revolutionary Guards. So the impact of external sanctions and, you know, U.S.-Iran tension absolutely casts a cloud over the Iranian economy. But the bottom line is that even if sanctions were to be removed, even if the acrimony between America and Iran were to be reduced, this is still a place which is not friendly to foreign investors. It's not transparent. And, you know, as the old saying uh, about capital goes, capital goes where it's welcome and it stays where it's well-treated and neither of those happen in Iran. Has the regime in, in, in any way hidden behind the fact that there are sanctions in place in defending itself against a public that's complaining about it? Absolutely. They, much like Fidel Castro in Cuba, they use sanctions as a pretext for their internal mismanagement and malaise and corruption. And it's been difficult in some ways for Iran's supreme leader to do that because for many years he actually applauded sanctions. And he said, either, you know, Iran is impervious to sanctions or actually sanctions are helpful to Iran because they force Iran to become economically self-sufficient, which is one of the really strong tenets of his worldview, economic self-sufficiency. So it's difficult for him after decades of saying that sanctions are helpful or Iran is impervious to sanctions to all of a sudden blame sanctions entirely on Iran's economic malaise. And actually, he's downplayed the impact of sanctions and has said this is more about domestic mismanagement, essentially putting the burden on the Rouhani administration for their mismanagement. Yeah. Well, he always he has that convenience, right, of yes. blaming, blaming the executive. I would say that the modus operandi of Iran's supreme leader is he wields power without accountability. And in order to do that, he needs a president who has accountability without power. power. And so it's a very convenient setup for him. So oil prices are at a four-year high. Is that going to help them in the short term? Is that going to give them some some strength in the short term that might have foreign policy effect? You know, I think the rise of oil prices is going to have a relatively negligible impact for Iran because come November, there's going to be new sanctions against Iran's oil industry. And making it increasingly difficult for uh, countries around the world to import Iranian oil. So their exports are are bound to decrease and perhaps quite significantly. And so the rise in oil prices is not going to be enough to make up for that loss of exports. So Iranian politics. Mm -hmm. So help us understand that. And maybe the place to start is, can you describe the political spectrum in Iran? Mm -hmm different groups, relative strength, who they represent among the population, etc. Well, the first place to start when you're talking about Iranian politics is the person of the supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei. 
He has been supreme leader since 1989. He, he actually hasn't left the country since 1989. And he is far and away the most powerful. How indiv- old is he? He's 79 years old. And he's far and away the most powerful individual in Iran. And the most powerful institutions in Iran, they have these kind of Byzantine names, something out of the Game of Thrones, you know, the, the Revolutionary Guards, the Guardians Council, the Expediency Council. For the most part, the most powerful institutions in Iran are led by individuals who are either handpicked by Ayatollah Khamenei or have been unfailingly obsequious to him. So he is um, by far the most powerful individual in Iran. He's not necessarily an absolute dictator the way that Saddam Hussein was in Iraq, but he essentially has veto power over any major or perhaps even minor decision in Iran. Now, after Khamenei, the institution which I think is most powerful to pay attention to is the institution of the Revolutionary Guards. And we're talking about approximately 125,000 men. And Khamenei uh, has very carefully cultivated the Revolutionary Guards over the years. He handpicks their senior cadres, senior, you know, top two, three tiers of individuals. And he shuffles them quite frequently in order to kind of keep them from becoming too comfortable in the role and, and preventing them from acquiring their own power base. And I describe the relationship between Khamenei and Revolutionary Guards as a symbiotic relationship in that it's politically expedient for Khamenei to show that he has this military power behind him. And it's a relationship which has been economically expedient for the Revolutionary Guards. They've made a lot of money over the years. They're not only Iran's increasingly most powerful political institution, but also Iran's most powerful economic institution. It's part of the crony capitalism that you talked about. Absolutely, absolutely. And is this... Are the hardliners in any way demographically challenged? Or Iran's young people signing up to be hardliners in the numbers that are needed to sustain the hardliners over time? You know, it's a very good point. And if you look at the demographics of Iranian society, more and more Iranians every day were born after the 1979 revolution. I think now about three quarters of the population was either born after the revolution, 1979 revolution, or were, or were children. So the experience of 1979 and the culture of 1979, death to America, death to Israel, that doesn't resonate with young people who really want to be like South Korea, not North Korea. You know, they want to be part of the outside world. They want economic dignity. So the hardliners don't have a whole lot of recruits or a whole lot of affinity among younger generation Iranians. But the reality is they have a monopoly of coercion. They are organized and they have guns And they're willing to kill and perhaps to die in order to preserve their power. And you have a society, a younger generation especially, which is not willing to die en masse to take power. And so I think this is always something which is difficult for Americans to understand. When I I talk to American audiences, they always say, well, if Iranians are so discontent and these hardliners really represent a small minority of society, how does the regime sustain itself? And I think what we tend to underestimate is the effectiveness of repression. You know, that... that, that What we saw in 2009. Exactly. And I think this is a regime by virtue of the fact that they don't really have allies around the world. If you look at the Shah's government, the Shah of Iran, whose government collapsed in 1979, the elite of the Shah era, the political and military elite, a lot of them had studied in the West... A lot of them had Western passports. And so when the going got tough in 1978, 
they could remake their lives in Los Angeles or Bethesda or London. And the elite of the Islamic Republic, both the military and political elite, they didn't study abroad. They don't speak foreign languages and they don't have friends abroad. You know, Syria has really been one of Iran's only consistent allies. And so for that reason, by virtue of the fact they don't really have a plan B, I think these folks are willing to kill a lot of people to, to keep power. And for that reason, I, I think the pace of change in Iran has been much slower than people would like to see. So the constituency that President Rouhani represents, how f- distant is that from the hardliners? You know, some people call them reformers, some people call them moderates. How do you think about that? The way I think about President Rouhani and Ayatollah Khamenei is to think about Ayatollah Khamenei as Iran's Brezhnev, right? The Soviet Premier Brezhnev, someone who basically is committed to the status quo, committed to preserving the status quo. Now, President Rouhani and his kind of pragmatist clique, they are fellow revolutionaries. You know, Rouhani is very much a regime insider. He's committed to the revolution. He's committed to preserving the Islamic Republic. But I compare Rouhani to Deng Xiaoping, who essentially for China wanted to put the country's economic interests before revolutionary ideology. And that's the way Rouhani thinks about Iran that if we want to preserve the regime, if we want to preserve the revolution, we have to put our economic interests before revolutionary ideology. Rouhani is not a Democrat. He wants to see the Islamic Republic survive, but kind of an Islamic Republic light, a system which, as I said, prioritizes economic interests and is maybe a little less restrictive when it comes to Iranian society. And I think the the view of the hardliners in Iran, in particular Ayatollah Khamenei, is that once you start to compromise on your ideals, on your principles, just like Gorbachev did in the Soviet Union, that's when this house is going to collapse on top of our head. And I actually happen to think that Khamenei is correct. I mean, this is a famous observation from de Tocqueville, that the most dangerous moment for any authoritarian regime is when it tries to reform itself. So if I were an advisor to Ayatollah Khamenei, I wouldn't advise him to take the path of reform because, in my opinion, that's likely only going to accelerate the Islamic Republic's demise. That's really interesting. One more question on politics before we move to foreign policy. So these protests that we see from time to time, how do you think about those? Are those in any way a threat to the regime or is this repression so powerful that people going out in the street can't? bring change. I mean, Trotsky famously said about dictatorships that while they rule, their collapse appears inconceivable, and after they've fallen, their collapse appeared inevitable. And the Islamic Republic as a system, its its collapse in some ways is, is in my opinion, inevitable. But w- what matters is the timeline we're talking about. And that, you know, George Kennan famously wrote about the Soviet Union in his, ex, in his, in his famous long telegram, that the Soviet Union has within it the seeds of its own demise. He wrote that in 1947. The Soviet Union took four decades to collapse. I used to be a North Korean analyst, you know, in the 1980s, yes. and I said the the collapse is, you know, is certain, right? And, and, and which is and it true. Is, it is. But it, it, we're talking about, you know, what is the yes. right time frame? And yes. so what we've seen in Iran, both with more recent protests that happened at the beginning of this year and the major 2009 protests, is that almost all elements of Iranian society aren't happy with things the way they are. So in 2009, it was more of a protest among 
urban sophisticates in Tehran or and elsewhere. But at one point, you had an estimated two to three million take to the streets in the city of Tehran. The protests that happened this year, I think, really shocked the Islamic Republic because they came in the heartland of the Islamic Republic in very traditional cities like Qom and Mashhad, you know, constitu- areas where the Islamic Republic thought it had its constituents. I likened it at the time to major anti-Trump protests taking place in a place like Kansas or Oklahoma, you know, places which are GOP strongholds in the United States. And so we see in Iran that, you know, women are are discontent and they're taking to the streets, removing their veils. Young people don't have economic dignity. You have labor movements, folks who haven't been paid for many months, you know, people who want more social freedoms, economic freedoms, political freedoms. So you do have uh, massive discontent and the portion of Iranian society which is discontent keeps growing. Now, what I thought was notable about these protests which happened this year is that in, in 2009 when Iranians protested, only only one million Iranians had smartphones with video cameras. This time around, 48 million Iranians have smartphones with video cameras. So it's increasingly difficult for the regime to control communication, to control... To isolate an incident. Exactly, to isolate an entire society. But I always go back to the fact that the bottom line is that this regime is still willing to use lethal force uh, and they're organized. And it's a society which, in my opinion, is not willing to die en masse. I mean, one of the things I say about Iran is that in 1979, Iranians experienced a revolution without democracy. And today they aspire for democracy without a revolution. And so for that reason, the pace of change, in my opinion, is likely going to be slower than Iranians and Americans would like to see. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Kareem Sajapur. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. Okay, Iranian foreign policy, what are their objectives? So with the 1979 revolution, Iran went from being a U.S.-allied monarchy to a virulently anti-American theocracy. And I would argue there's kind of three pillars now of Iranian foreign policy. Number one is opposition to the United States. Death to America has really become a slogan which is inextricably part of the identity of the Islamic Republic. So death to America, death to Israel, rejection of Israel's existence and support for groups, militant groups like Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, Hamas that oppose Israel. And number three has been the rivalry with Saudi Arabia. And I would argue that the hostility toward America and toward Israel, is, are, as I mentioned, part of the identity, part of the DNA of the Islamic Republic under Khamenei. Now, maybe that I think President Rouhani would like to see a different relationship between America and Iran. But as long as Khamenei is supreme leader, that acrimony is going to remain 
And what I argue is that Khamenei, his hostility toward America is cloaked in ideology, but I would argue it's really driven by self-preservation because I think he understands, and as do his Revolutionary Guard elite, understand that it's easier for them to keep their hold on power in a closed, isolated environment. and Where there's an enemy, too. Where there's an enemy, absolutely. And one of the reasons that they fear, I actually would argue that Khamenei fears rapprochement with the U.S. more than continued hostility, because he understands that if you crack open the Islamic Republic, you you give away that enmity with the United States, and there's there's you know foreign investment and and civil society exchanges. It's much more difficult for him to maintain. What's interesting about your three pillars is it gives him three enemies. Yes, right. What's the source of the animosity from the Iranian perspective with Saudi Arabia? Is it Sunni Shia? Is it Persian Arab? Is it simply regional power? What is it? It's really all of the above. I mean, there is absolutely an ethnic slash sectarian rivalry there with Persian Iran versus Arab Saudi Arabia, Shiite Iran versus Sunni Saudi Arabia. I would argue it's above all a geopolitical rivalry. You know, if you look at the region's bloodiest hotspots, whether that's Syria, Yemen, Iraq, to a lesser extent, Lebanon, Bahrain, Iran and Saudi Arabia are on opposing sides of that proxy battle. And the rivalry has really grown more pronounced in the last couple of years with the arrival of Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. And you juxtapose 32-year-old Mohammed bin Salman and 79-year-old Ayatollah Khamenei, and you couldn't get two more different leaders. You know, Mohammed bin Salman's vision for Saudi Arabia is called Vision 2030, and I call Khamenei's vision, Vision 1979, mm. right? They have very different worldviews. And, you know, I, I would argue that the hostility towards Saudi Arabia also has a domestic, uh, uh, there's a domestic expediency there for Iran because it is one issue in which both Persian secular nationalists who hate the Islamic Republic and Shiite nationalists who like the Islamic Republic can agree that this rivalry with uh, Saudi Arabia is something which, you know, animates them as as nationalists, whether you're a Persian nationalist or a Shiite nationalist. So how do the Iranians look at U.S. policy today? How do they think about the Trump administration? Uh, how do they make sense of, of what it is we're doing? You know, it seems that the Iranian strategy is essentially to try to wait out the Trump administration, to you know wait what happens with the midterm elections, wait till 2020 to see if President Trump is reelected. So, so stay in the nuclear deal until then? Is that what waited out means? You know, do you think? I, I think there there's a kind of a conventional wisdom that believes that Iran is going to stay in the nuclear deal. I have to say I'm not necessarily convinced that they will do that. I, I see four potential outcomes. Let, let me say first yeah. what I think sure. the U.S. strategy is, because I think that for Secretary of State Pompeo, National Security Advisor Bolton, they're trying to subject Iran to significant economic pressure in order to force one of two outcomes. Outcome number one is essentially Iranian capitulation, not only in the nuclear context, but also the regional. regional context. Actually come back to the table and renegotiate exactly. both of those. Things. Yes. Renegotiate one and for the first time negotiate the other. Exactly. So capitulation or implosion. So either you 
you capitulate or, you know, it's the end of the Iranian regime. I don't think President Trump necessarily sees things the same way, but I would argue that that's the current U.S. strategy as executed by Secretary of State Pompeo. Now, I see four potential outcomes between now and 2020. Outcome number one is essentially the status quo. The U.S. has pulled out of the deal, but Iran remains part of the nuclear deal, as do the other parties to the deal, Europe, Russia, and China. And the argument, just just so folks understand this, the argument for Iran staying in the deal is it makes it harder for the rest of the world to join the U.S.'s side as opposed to Iran's side. Exactly, that Iran is seen as kind of the upstanding actor, which is staying within international agreements, and it's the United States which is seen as being the the intransigent actor. And, and if you paid attention to the UN General Assembly this week, this was a consistent Iranian talking point that it's America under Trump, which is behaving like a rogue regime, and Iran has continued to right. uh, make good on its agreements. So that's outcome number one, status quo, which if you're the United States, isn't a bad outcome because Iran is continuing to keep its foot on the nuclear brakes. Outcome number two is actually a renegotiation. And I think this is what President Trump aspires for, something along the lines of what happened with Kim Jong-un. Now, Iran's supreme leader is much more stubborn and much, you know, he has a much shorter time frame than Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un has to think about how he's going to rule North Korea for potentially the next three, four decades. Khamenei is 79 years old, so he doesn't have an outlook which is that long. And he's incredibly embittered, uh, mistrustful of the United States. And so he's announced no... And he has this fear that you talked about of opening up is actually threatening to the regime. Absolutely. So he's prohibited any negotiations with the United States. But, you know, six months from now, eight months from now, as Iran's economy continues to spiral downwards, maybe it's, uh, um, you know, there's increased protests in Iran. At some point, he may have to swallow his pride, just as he did when Iran signed the nuclear deal. So I wouldn't rule out a possibility of renegotiation. So that's outcome number two. Just to get to renegotiation Mm -hmm. would probably require a good chunk of the rest of the world to come to our side of the fence on the sanctions or not. I I think what's happening with the sanctions is that the, the European political leaders and obviously Russian and Chinese political leaders have sided more with Iran than the United States. They've said that they're committed to preserving the nuclear deal. Iran has stayed in the nuclear deal. America hasn't. And so therefore, we shouldn't be penalizing Iran. But the captains of industry in places like Europe, and even some, to some extent, you know, places like China, India, South Korea, they see this as a binary choice. Either they, have, either they can do business with America or they can do business with Iran. Because if they do business with Iran, they subject themselves to potential U.S. sanctions. And for the vast majority of country companies around the world, it's an easy choice because if their business with Iran is X, their business with America is 50X. And so despite the fact that European political leaders have tried to preserve the deal and reassure Iran that they're going to continue to promote foreign investment in Iran, when you talk to CEOs of major oil companies, they say, listen, we don't agree with the U.S. decision to pull out of the nuclear deal, we're not, we're, but we're not going to risk uh, getting sanctioned by America for doing business in Iran. So you think the next round of sanctions are going to really hurt, which could possibly lead to your scenario where the Supreme Leader renegotiates, but still maybe not? 
he may be forced to swallow his pride, you know, and not, it's probably going to take pretty significant pain. But the reality is Iranians are enduring pretty significant pain. And if you have a Trump administration, which keeps actually saying publicly, as Trump has done, that he wants to renegotiate and talk with Iran, it's putting Iran's supreme leader in a very difficult position because a society which is, you know, is being pummeled economically are going to say, just talk to American president, you know, swallow your pride. So it's, it's actually putting Trump in quite a... Right, that's two. Yeah, that's two. that's two. So outcome number three is actually something major happening within Iran, either a regime implosion or uh, the Revolutionary Guards taking power more overtly in the form of some type of a coup. These things are impossible to predict. But again, if, if, if the economic challenges continue to mount, people haven't been paid in months, and you have different facets of Iranian society starting to protest, it could lead to some internal tumult. If you had asked any expert on Egypt or Libya or Tunisia, what are the prospects for, you know, popular revolution in, in December 2010? Most people would have said very, very low. I also wouldn't predict that outcome in Iran, but it is within the realm of possibilities. You do have that same type of discontent in Iran. So that's outcome number three. So um, it's, it's interesting to me, I used to talk to my analysts about mm. this with regard to to the Arab states, right? You're not predicting it, but you wouldn't be surprised yes. necessarily if it happened. That's what you're yes. saying. Yes, yes. I think that, that that sentiment exists in Iran where people are just really fed up with the status quo. Now, I think the failure of the Arab Spring, when Iranians look at the television set and they see what's happening in Yemen or in Syria or Iraq, that's not inspiring, Right. And I think people would like to avoid mass unrest. They've already experienced one disillusioning revolution. But but I, I think we've always consistently underestimated the depth of discontent within Iran, which could have some political ramifications within the country. And outcome number four is, is conflict. And what's unique about Iran is that it's perhaps the only country in the world which is simultaneously involved in three proxy wars with Saudi Arabia, with Israel, and with the United States. And all three of these cold wars could potentially turn hot. I think the the most perilous environment at the moment is in Syria between Iran and Israel. Iran has been using Syria as a launching pad to launch drone strikes against Israel. You could easily see that um, deteriorate. Uh, Iran has used Yemen and its proxies in Yemen to launch missiles, almost hitting the Riyadh airport. You could see that also turning hot. And the U.S. and Iran, there's a whole host of ways that you could see a, a conflict emerging, whether it's Iran trying to you know, harass U.S. ships in the Persian Gulf, which they've, they've seemingly decreased uh, their harassment of U.S. ships under Trump as compared to President Obama. If Iran restarts its nuclear program, you know, that could warrant a potential strike. And so I do think that there are so many conflicts happening in the world, and we kind of feel like the world doesn't have bandwidth for yet another one. But I do think it's within the realm of possibilities that in the next two years, you see some type of an escalation slash conflict with Iran between Iran and one of those three countries I mentioned. 
if it were up to you, Kareem, how would you adjust U.S. policy? How would you change U.S. policy? What well, do you think the right approach is? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've seen U.S. policy over the years shift from uh, one strategy to another. And if I had to kind of simplify the way U.S. administrations have looked at Iran, um, you know, the, the many folks on the left see Iran as the Iran's hostile ideology as merely being a reaction to policies of the United States. And they believe that if only we reach out and then we engage Iran. Everything they're doing in the region is defending themselves. Exactly. That Iran will reciprocate and, you know, we can uh, reach some type of an accommodation slash rapprochement. I, I really think the Obama administration exhausted that strategy. I really think President Obama tried that strategy. And I'm told by his advisors that by the end of his administration, he kind of had reached the conclusion that you can't make amends with a regime which needs you as an adversary for its own internal legitimacy. Obama had met, written letters to the Supreme Leader and didn't really, nothing came to fruition. Now, the opposite extreme in a way is to say, okay, if only we exact enough pressure on the Iranian regime, then it will either capitulate or implode. And I think that underestimates, in a way, the nature of power in Iran, that it's true the the, the forces that control Iran don't represent a large portion of society. But as I've mentioned, they are armed and they're organized and committed to staying in power. So the way I think about an Iran strategy, the template I would use in some ways is similar to Ronald Reagan's approach towards the Soviet Union. Now, I don't want to elevate Iran to a global superpower. It's not. It's a regional power. But I think what Reagan did very effectively was, you know, for when authoritarian regimes change or transform or collapse, there's usually two key ingredients. One is pressure from below, but the other is divisions from above. And what Reagan did very effectively was he voiced solidarity with Russian dissidents and with uh, Russian civil society. You know, those forces in, in, in Russia that wanted change were tired of living under the Soviet Union but he simultaneously engaged the Russian leadership in arms control deals. He engaged Mr. Gorbachev. And in doing that, I think he effectively created fissures within the Soviet system. And the Soviet Union was not necessarily destined to collapse as it did. You know, the fact that we avoided major bloodshed, the Soviet military didn't crush en masse as it, as it could have, I think in retrospect was really the byproduct of a very wise strategy. And I feel what the Trump administration is doing now is only half that strategy. So they're trying to incite pressure from below and encouraging Iranians to rise up. But they haven't done a very effective job at trying to create and foment divisions from above. And in some ways, they've actually united the Iranian political and military sphere uh, much more than it was, say, a year or two ago. So, Kareem, you've been terrific sharing your time with us. I'll just ask you one more question. I've read a lot of what you've written, and you take a very long approach occasionally. How do you think historians are going to look back at this time in U.S. 
Iranian relations. And I mean the time from the revolution to now. What's this going to look like, you know, in a 500-year span? Well, that's a wonderful question because I really do think the hostility between America and Iran at the moment is an historic anomaly. I always like to quote Henry Kissinger. He said that there are few nations in the world with whom the United States has more common interests and less reason to quarrel than Iran. But Iran has to decide whether it's a nation or a cause. In the last four decades, Iran has seen itself as a revolutionary cause in opposition to America, in opposition to Israel. And that has produced relationships which, in my opinion, don't really reflect the Iranian national interest. In my opinion, the Iranian national interest, there's far more overlapping interest between America and Iran than, say, Russia and Iran. Russia has historically had colonialist ambitions in Iran. So my sense is that we're going to look years from now at this period between America and Iran as an anomaly. Uh, but when and how the Islamic Republic changes is is anyone's guess. I always think of the great, you know, perhaps the, one of the original founders of sociology, the North African scholar Ibn Khaldun, he said that empires are built and destroyed over three generations. The first generation builds it, second generation preserves it, third generation loses it. And we're just entering the second generation of leaders in Iran. But my sense is that even among the second generation leaders, let alone come to the third generation leaders, there's a private recognition, if not a public recognition, there's a private recognition that this death to America culture of 1979 is really bankrupt in 2018. Fascinating. Kareem, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. That was Kareem Sajapur. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.